Hi, Moonies. Welcome to the Sailor Moon Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Victoria L. Johnson, and I'm here with Miss Dream creator Ellie and the site's right-hand man, Dan, aka Mario Knight. Um, with the rest of the team, they've just transcribed and made so many Sailor Moon-related work available, including some of Naoko Taikauchi's other manga and interviews and a bunch of doujinshis. Um, and I'm really happy to have them here. This is a site I've been following for a really long time, and they are amazing, and I'm really excited to talk to them. So anyway... Without further ado, welcome to the podcast. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. How's how are you thank doing, Ellie? Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're really excited to be here and yes. talk to you. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you both too. This is so awesome. Um, so the first question I ask everyone um, is, "What's your first memory of watching Sailor Moon?" Vaguely catching it when it was on uh, syndication uh, early in the morning. I randomly came up to it uh, someday. I didn't really get into it then, uh, but that was like the first time I, I saw it. I, I really got into it uh, when it uh, came onto Toonami. Uh, my parents had just gotten cable around that same time, and um, I, I just fell in love with it after some episodes and uh, really, really stayed with it now over uh, two decades later. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> How about you, Ellie? Um, for me, my story is a little bit different. Um, I actually, at the time, um, I was happened to be browsing uh, maybe a bootleg shop in Chinatown mm-hmm. um, as a kid. And there's a particular underground mall, I won't name it by name, in New York City, oh. um, where you can find subtitled, at least in the 90s, you can find subtitled VHS that were usually imported from like Hong Kong. So a lot of like Cantonese bootlegs. Anyway, uh, I happened to be walking around and I was with my younger brother and he was darting in and out between stores. And anyway, I ended up looking for him and I went inside of this shop in the underground mall and they had like a little CRT monitor hanging in the corner and they were playing like a bootleg VHS of the Sailor Stars anime, which I had never seen before. Um, and at the time I was like maybe 10 or something. And actually my younger brother liked Sailor Moon more than me. So when I found him, I like brought him back to the shop and I was like, oh my God, like, look, there's all this Sailor Moon stuff that you didn't know about. And uh, long story short, we ended up buying like way too many bootlegs and I became more (laughs) obsessed than he did. And uh, because the bootlegs were so bad, I was like, dang, you know, I really wish I could speak Japanese. Um, So that influenced a big part of my life. But yeah, it started when I was a a kid just watching cartoons. Yeah, that's so cool. I love hearing different... um ways people find Sailor Moon. It's just, it's always a fun story to hear. Um, and you say your brother, he's not, is he not into it at all anymore? Uh, not so much anymore, no. He, like, quickly grew out of that, and, like, by the time, he's, like, five or six years younger than me, so by the time that he was, like, eight, it was, like, way not cool to, like, little girly shows. That was, like, Got liking it. My Little Pony or something. He was super embarrassed, so. Aww. I mean, he, uh, he still likes anime, but he's not, like, a huge fan the way we were when we were kids. Yeah. I could see that happening. Me? Oh, so I actually have a similar story to kind of both of you. So I was actually just home and my um my older brother um just came. He was my other brother's really into anime. He's um about ten or fifteen years older than me. So like he grew up in like the eighties, like nineties, like Ninja Scroll Slayers kind of era. So he's kinda of, like really in tune. So he um he just came in. I was sitting in the living room and I remember he's just like, oh, this show's coming on. You should watch it. I think you'll like it. So I'm like, okay. And I'm like six or seven at the time. And it's Sailor Moon. It's the first episode and it's coming on Toonami. And just from then on, I was hooked. Um, 
Yeah, and that was it. <laughs> and then, um, you know, after it went off a tsunami, that was kind of stuck with me. And then um, I think later on, I was able to find some like bootlegs and rewatch it when I was in like middle school, high school around that time and like still loved it. And then obviously now I have these like bootleg DVDs. I can rewatch it all the time. Um, and yeah, that was it. That's so awesome. That's and I think it's really great. Like I think uh, many people I've met over the years have always had these kind of deep family connections with Sailor Moon. Like it's never, like for me at least, Many times when I talk about Sailor Moon, it's always in the context of, oh, yeah, this is something I used to watch, like, when I was a kid with my brothers or my sisters or my uncles or my aunties or right. my cousins or or my best friends, right? And it's always it's always been, like, a very community experience. I think that's what's so great about it and what makes it kind of withstand the test of time because it's something we can connect to over and over and over like any other fairy tale. Yeah, absolutely, and I watch that with my brother all the time as well. We almost always watch that together. Um, when I was still uh, living with the parents' house. Right. And, yeah, we had some good memories uh, watching that together. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's so fun. It's funny how it's all brothers for us, too, that <laughs> brought us to Sailor Moon. <laughs> Dudes like Sailor Moon more than they want to admit, I think. Totally. Younger, younger boys, yeah. Definitely. I think they loved it. Probably the same way we like with your younger brother. Like, they loved it until, like, someone told them it wasn't cool. And they were like, oh, no, I can't watch this thing. But, yeah. I bet there's a lot of them. Um, did you guys have any episodes that stood out for you over time? I can't think of any or moments. individual mm-hmm. episodes, but the, the whole S season really stood out to me over the rest. Like mm-hmm. I, I did get hooked into the first two seasons. Uh, that's what really drew me in. But I was just really impressed with S, like the sheer amount of like symbolism they had throughout that didn't really uh this wasn't as prominent in the first couple of seasons and the fact that uh, all of these since you didn't you know get along right away i i like that kind of dynamic it really seemed like that the uh, storytelling just really like it jumped up a level and uh so m- most of those uh, uh the storybound episodes of that season really stood out to me yeah how about you, Ellie? Um, for me, uh, this I, I can't remember the episode title, hmm. um, but one episode of the anime that always stood out to me is um, towards the end of the first season, um, they end up visiting like the ruins of the Moon Kingdom, and they meet like uh, Queen Serenity for the first time. And I have always had a very deep fondness and affection for the the concept of the silver millennium and like this strong female ruler, like the idea. I think that was like what really attracted me to the show as a little kid was like, whoa, this lady's a queen on the moon. And actually, there's not a really strong male presence like there's not it, the show's not about a king it's not about the men so much it's really focused on women and so I felt like I could connect to it and anyway like first for some reason like that particular episode really stood out because it was not only just um about the beauty of a relationship between a mother and, and their daughter and their love that would like kind of transcend time right mm-hmm. but also it was also about her relationships with other women and it wasn't she was not necessarily and and sailor moon's highly sexualized and that's another topic but it seemed to be a story that was really in the lens of a woman um even though culturally in the early 90s male gaze definitely a thing right. um, but at least for me at the time i 
I saw that this was about powerful women and women that could be strong and could be leaders. And so, yeah, that, that was like the first like episode that really, really resonated with me. Yeah. I think that definitely resonated with me too. Just, um, I think it was the first time I really kind of understood and saw like lore and like backstory and like flashbacks and like that, like seeing how those story devices could work and just being interested in that. Cause you know, I think, before that, I was probably just watching, like, straight cartoons, and that was the first time I was like, whoa, there's, like, a deeper thing going on here. Oh, yeah, that really stood out mm-hmm. to me, too, because, like, you know, when you're growing up on American cartoons in the 80s and the 90s, mm-hmm. they're really more episodic-based, but Sailor Moon had, like, more of a story weaved throughout that, yeah, some episodes are more episodic, but there was, like, a general plot going through that we really didn't get uh, in America until... Um, a decade or two later so that was also really made that show stand out to me uh, so much yeah yeah and i mean i have to give some credit to dragon ball z too because i was definitely watching that as well at the time but sailor moon obviously has a deeper hold on me <laughs> yep yeah um and i'm gonna ask both of you this is there a sailor scout that stood out to you or a sailor scout that you wanted to be well i can't really say wanted to be but mm-hmm. um <laughs> No, I, I've always enjoyed uh, Sailor Venus the most. Mm-hmm. She's always been my favorite. She's the like mix of like a good leader, but also is you know inner element like you know being silly at the same time. Like she can hold multiple roles, and I I, I always enjoyed that uh, aspect of her. Yeah, that's super true. I love Venus. Venus is great. How about you, Ellie? So, for me, my answer is Sailor Mars. Um, And the reason I really have always liked her as my perhaps favorite character in the entire series is that she's always been aloof and alone. And it very much came out of a sense of social anxiety and, like, feeling like she didn't belong, like, feeling like an outsider. And I think many children can connect to that and feel... feel, how that can be real and and present in their own lives. And so for me, I was very shy when I was young and I really struggled to connect to other people and make friends. Um, I've always had like maybe some level of anxiety interacting with people. And so I recognized um, a lot of the same things like in the episodes that were early about Sailor Mars where she's like getting bullied because the kids are like, she's too stuck up. I was like, oh shit. Hmm. hurts it's too real you know <laughs> so misunderstood uh, so, but i but it it felt like a character i could connect to right and it's like yeah she has a hot temper and a sharp tongue and she can be like kind of mean actually very mean and um but she's very independent and deeply spiritual and those are strengths too and those are honored and respected so i she's always been my favorite but what about you victoria Oh, <laughs> I like how you're asking me these questions, too. Um, I'm interested. I want to hear your perspective. Yeah, I've always loved Sailor Moon. Um, I just always identified with her, which I'm not entirely sure why, because I wasn't bad at school. But I think just like this idea of like her being kind of imperfect. And, you know, I, I did like I was scared of like scary movies. So that that lines up. <laughs> but yeah, I think just something about her just always stood out to me as just someone I could relate to but also the fact that she could be a hero and the leader like she it wasn't like she wasn't the ideal like chosen one but at the same time like 
she had to step up to the plate. So like that always just like um, allured me. But I also really love Sailor Venus, like Dan, because um, I just think she's really cool. Um, I love that. Like I'm a huge Batman fan, so like the fact that like she originally started off as kind of like a detective-y kind of character um, is really interesting to me. And just I love the glasses too. Like I really wish they kept that in Sailor Moon's design as well. But I love um, I love the red glasses on Venus. Um, yeah. But there's a little bit of something. I love Jupiter, too, just because of that duality of her being a tomboy. Um, I also really love Neptune because I used to play piano and she's a musician um, and she's just like super talented. And I I look up to her. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's what's like so great about the series, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. every character is almost like a little bit of a duality unto themselves, right? Yeah. You expect people who are masculine maybe not to act hyper feminine the way that jupiter does right she can be very powerful and masculine in one aspect but she can be soft and hyper feminine and in another she can be kind of the reverse of herself and that i think is like so cool about each character is that in many ways they act as these kind of um dualities right um and neptune's a great example i'm so glad that you brought her up because Mm -hmm. she is somebody who's like she's the representative of neptune right the spiritual the unknown and um like that's associated with water and feelings and emotion and there's all this astrology and and zodiac lore that's built into it and of course lots of greek and roman mythology Mm -hmm. um at the same time that she's this deeply empathic person she also comes off with a very cold detached kind of personality when she first um, meets people, which is kind of the opposite of what you expect somebody who's deeply emotional, like deep like the ocean, you know? Right. So uh, I've, I've always loved that. And I think what's so cool about the series is that there's really something for every person. Uh, I don't care what gender or sexual identity. I think really for every person in the world, there's something that you can find in Sailor Moon that speaks to your soul. Definitely. And I think there is a Sailor Scout for everyone. <laughs> Even if you have to choose multiple to put it together. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about Miss Dream, because this is kind of like what brought us together. Um, how did the site come about? Oh, that's a me question. Yeah. Uh, this is... Came in, I'm, I'm, it started with me. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of a personal story, but I'll share. I, th- I think after these many years, I feel comfortable sharing. Um, I had had my son. I have a son who's 12. I had had him very young. And shortly after he was born, um, I was still, like, you know, um, finishing school. I was studying Japanese language. I was a trained translator. Um, JLPT license. And at the time, I was, like, considering pursuing a career in academia, like pursuing a PhD in Japanese linguistic studies. And um, at that point in my life, you know, I had been working, um, there was a, an academic journal called Monumentica Nipponica, and they are an academic journal that you can find on JSTOR um, that is specializing in East Asian studies. Um, and my mentor in college um, is an expert in Buddhism. Uh, his, he's a guy named Mark Blum, and he uh, actually, he's a I want to say he's like the head of the East Asian Studies Department, but I'm not sure if that's right. But Mark Blum uh, teaches Buddhism at UC Berkeley now. Uh, At the time, he was my mentor at the college I went to. 
so I had been like on this like very set kind of uh, career tra- trajectory, and then I, I had my son, and I changed. I made adjustments, right? We all make adjustments. So mm-hmm. one of the adjustments that I made was like kind of pivoting away from pursuing this career in academia to um, pursuing like a technical translation career. Um, so I found myself at home working as a freelancer um, or with very irregular hours because I had an infant son. So there were times he would wake up in the middle of the night and I would have nothing to do. Um, and I used to have, uh, back in the day, uh, so I, I used to also live on the East Coast uh, in southern New York, like on the New York, New Jersey border, uh, metro New York area. Got it. And uh, I used to go to uh, Edgewater, New Jersey and go book shopping at Kino Kunia. And I had, like, the 1990s, like, original, like, first edition prints of the Sailor Moon manga. Like, Mm -hmm. I have always been more a manga fan than any other media, I guess. Yeah. And so I started with just, uh, okay, I'm looking at the stacks of the books in the corner that are in Japanese. I'm a professional translator, and I've never actually taken a stab at making a fan site. Like, like not just making a fan site. I mean, I definitely had, like, GeoCities and stuff as a kid, but... Mm -hmm. Like, taking a serious approach to translating Sailor Moon. Like, what would it look like to produce um, an accurate translation that's culturally sensitive and I think accurately represents the dialogue and the, the feeling and the emotion and the flow of the story um, from Japanese into English? What would that look like? And so I had this kind of tool, skit, tool, tool belt um, under my skirt, so to speak, where I was a trained academic uh, translator and I had free time. So I decided, like, very slowly. I mean, I started, like, with little tiny side projects as I first opened Miss Dream, but um, it was an opportunity for me to, as I was becoming a mother and kind of transitioning into a new role in my life, it was a kind of way of honoring my childhood and saying goodbye as I transitioned into, like, the next phase of adulthood. So um, many years as my son was young, I mean, I, I, um, I, I would say that I prolifically translated for Miss Dream. Um, and we and, and not just me. I mean, we had a staff of many prolific, very talented translators. Um, one of whom today, uh, Katie Allen, uh, runs the site. And actually, I've known her for, gosh, very long. Very, very long. <laughs> very, very long. Um, so that's really where it started from, um, was just kind of my own personal project. And I uh, had a friend who kind of encouraged me to open. Her name's Jen Yisley. I think you can find her on Tumblr. Uh, maybe Facebook. I'm, I, I'm sure she's still around. Uh, she lives in Pennsylvania now. It's been many years since we've been in touch. But um, anyway, she encouraged me like, okay, like, why don't instead of just doing it, like, why don't we think about how to share it? Um, long story short, we ended up getting connected with Dan through Jen. And I think when Dan joined the team, he really brought a lot of um, project management and cohesiveness and kind of organization that really wasn't there because uh, I was definitely not like a library cataloger professionally. Um, and a lot of what we do on Mystream now is like um, digital, cataloz- digital cataloging, or I would say like almost an international Sailor Moon media library. I mean, it's really um, expanded far in scope, way beyond my original ten- intentions. Um, so that's how... I got started. I mean, there's been many years since I've been directly involved. So I'm going to maybe hand it over to Dan because his story um, is actually longer than mine. I think uh, you've been now engaged in Miss Dream longer than me, even though I created it. 
Wow. <laughs> yeah, that probably sounds about right, because I, um, I really started working on the site uh, kind of early on when Ellie was doing the translation of the Sailor Moon manga. And uh, as she had mentioned, uh, I brought like a lot of more like uh, project management and cohesiveness with it, because at the time we were just kind of... Uh, signing things to people, the volunteers at uh, random for different aspects of management. But um, so I kind of like sat down and really just like laid out what was already in place, tried to tie it all together and tried to have something more like um, unified moving forward. And that allowed us to really get a lot of the manga posted online and well, a lot faster than, uh, than it was getting uh, previously, uh, it took almost a year to get about like the first arc online, and then in less than a year after that, uh, the whole rest of the manga was done along with the uh, Sailor V um, manga. So it was like uh, 21 books translated in two years. Wow. Yeah. And. You know, that's when we were talking on uh, expanding to uh, Naoko's other works, which mm-hmm. was a wonderful project in itself. Um, and I was also doing like a lot uh, in the back end, too, that most people wouldn't see of trying to organize like all the different downloads that even though it's only for us, so we'd be able to refer to it easier. So there's like a lot of, l- l- lot of back end work uh, that I was involved with uh, at the time. And then things really uh, exploded when we had a uh, very generous donor who we still keep in contact with today, who offered to help us catalog all of the Nakayoshi uh, that mm. Sailor Moon appeared in. And that, things really exploded after that point. <laughs> uh, because then we would um, you know, take these Nakayoshi, uh, take them apart, scan them. We decided to both uh, scan like the entire issue as well as do uh, manual scans of any of Naoko's work uh, in the Nakayoshi issues. So we we really started as a big catalog service at that point and it like, just hit the like while like also while translating musicals all of Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon um, dozens of audio CDs. I mean we yeah Dan managed a project uh, catalog that I think would say looking back on it now, was so ambitious that I don't remember how we did it in our early 20s. I mean, I think it was very caffeine-fueled. Yeah, definitely, definitely (laughs) very, very caffeine-fueled. And, yeah, luckily we'd put a lot of stuff under the belt by the time the new musical started. And, oh, it was wonderful being able to do projects like that in real time uh, with Japan. Uh, La Reconquista was probably the most hectic weekend of all of our lives. But... (laughs) being able to turn around as much as all of us did in that literally weekend was just nothing short of amazing and I think that's probably like the what we're probably most known for because of like that turnaround for something that was actually new and not uh, because we, we, when we translated the manga that was before Kodansha even had the license to do the manga mm-hmm. and so that was literally the first like new translation of the manga in years and with the new musicals that was the first time we had any new Sailor Moon content in decades literally like right. in the world and that really 
things really exploded then, both just in popularity and, you know, we, we had little issues with the network on our server that uh, we had caused. That was delightful. But <laughs> <laughs> just just that one day because there were so many people jumping on that particular night. Right. Um, which is yeah. to be expected. But we, we wrote it out. Yeah. I mean, Sailor Moon fans are dedicated. I think that's one Absolutely. thing we can say for sure. Um and yeah, I have to just thank you both of you just because I mean, this this site has been a huge, like valuable resource for me and as a fan and, you know, creating this podcast, just to be able to go back and read a lot of, um, you know, Nayako's work and, um, you know, old magazines and interviews just and then now I, I realize, you know, I hadn't been on the site in so long that you have this whole section with like all these doujinshis and I'm like, oh, I need to read through all of these one day. <laughs> There's so, so many. And, yeah. I think we also have, like, it, that part is going to expand even more. Um, wow. What's, what's so cool to me about the Sailor Moon community, Victoria, is just how generous and interconnected people are. Mm-hmm. Um, so we opened Mystream, let's see, uh, 2009, I think, or eight. No, I definitely start. Uh, anyway, it. I'm not sure exactly, but mm-hmm. uh, it's been over a decade, and right. we didn't anticipate doing any of this. I mean, it really started, I think, as Dan mentioned, we had our first serious patron who said, um, we're going to help engage you to do a research project, and we want you to um, find and procure every single issue of Nakayoshi and these backorder rare Japanese antique magazines that have mm-hmm. been decades out of print. And we're going to pay for the whole thing. And we're going to buy you, um, I mean, like, we had one generous donor who got us a um, professional, like, automated dual-side scanner. I mean, it's, like, ridiculous. It's, like, a $10,000 piece of equipment. Um, We've had people over the years send us, like, book-binding equipment. Or um, just, hey, I'm bored of all of my VHS or my laser discs or whatever. Do you want to take it and catalog it for the site? I mean, we've had people reach out with total strangers who don't need to trust us like i don't know why people do like i'm just like cool here's my p.o box like yeah send your stuff i'll catalog it but uh we've had we've come into contact with so many generous people that i have to say it can't just be coincidence i really think that there is something um really deeply compassionate and interconnected about the Sailor Moon community that allows it to be this prolific because for sure no one or two person enterprise can do this alone. I mean, this is really a representation of this entire community over more than a decade. Um, So, I mean, like for another, I mean, we've not just had one patron like that who helped us catalog perhaps print media, media, but we have another patron um, and this is really cool. I'm excited to share this. Um, he's a retired fellow who lives in Southern California, um, and he actually had opportunity throughout his career um, to travel to Japan and attend Kamiket. And uh, if you've never heard of it, Kamiket is this uh, maybe what do you call like a fanzine conference, like fan yeah fan magazines, I guess you would call them. And uh, the copyright infringement is kind of looked at the other way. And anyway, they hold this in Tokyo every year for, gosh, decades. Yeah, it's like an open-air market. I don't know what's going to happen with COVID, but um, anyway, this particular gentleman, starting in 1992 when the series premiered, would attend 
Tomake for all of the days and would buy every single Sailor Moon related zine he could find. He did this every year from 1992 until he retired a couple years ago. Wow. So the gentleman has, I want to say, uh, he said he has an entire storage unit for it. So we're looking at, I think, what, what did he say, like ten to 20,000 titles? Yeah, it's definitely within that. Yeah, I mean, the guy, I mean, uh, to say that he's a collector is maybe an understatement, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> the guy has a private library, and he reached out to us several years ago, and we've been slowly, I mean, for years, making our way through um, digitizing and sharing his library with the world. Um, yeah. And what a cool and rare opportunity is that, you know? What, like, that kind of dedication, I'm saying, like, exists over and over and over again in this fandom. And Mm -hmm. it's generous. It's not, I did this and I'm hoarding it to myself. It's, I did this and I want to share it with everybody. And so, now it's kind of like, we don't need to do anything. Like, really, we can just spotlight (laughs) what these these (laughs) other incredible collectors and contributors and artists have been really bringing to to the table for years. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, an alternate title for this podcast before um, was Sailor Moon fans are the best people on Earth, um, which is loosely (laughs) based on. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. um, Because I truly think so. Like, I have yet to meet a Sailor Moon fan I did not get along with. Um, And I just, yeah, like you said, they're just some of the most generous people. And I think it says a lot for the show, just like the values it teaches and the kind of people it it attracts. but that's so amazing. Like, I can't even imagine, like, going to a convention and being that dedicated that you buy every single, like, Sailor Moon fan comic. <laughs> like, he told me he used to go with wow. rolling luggage. Oh, my God. And you it's have open to. Air. It's like open air, usually. So, right. like, he would go to, like, each individual artist's little stall, make yeah. a transaction in cash add it to his rolling luggage and he would walk i mean he it was really interesting i mean he deserves his own podcast episode he's way cooler than me but like and he's like an engineer you know so he was like very pragmatic and organized i mean the guy uh, actually does a lot of the cataloging work for us as well on a volunteer basis it's it's nice. it's really quite incredible yeah the fellow is yeah he's just astonishing way cooler than me <laughs> and he had a precision like a dedication and a precision to it like a system you know he came yeah. at it from like a systems engineering design the guy was a programmer so right um yeah like i can't take credit for that i just get to be like well it's on my website <laughs> hey. happy there you go maybe yeah. i'll translate it like <laughs> yeah but i mean it says a lot though that you guys were like ready to like do this you know for this guy like the fact that you guys had this up and like have a system together for him that's to be actually, like here. <laughs> but that's kind of why he reached up because he was like, "Well, right. I have all of these that I really want to share, but I don't have the infrastructure to do that." He comes across Mystream at some point. And is like, "Well, these people do. Let's see if they're interested." And that's really how that uh, relationship started. Yeah, that's so cool. I and that's I amazing. I can't wait. It's by mm-hmm. accident, okay? Right. Like. Like, I didn't anticipate somebody giving us professional digitization equipment for free and Mm -hmm. then being like, hi, I'm sending you 15 boxes of comic books in the mail. Please do the thing. Like, I could have never (laughs) planned for that. Like, I never imagined this. Uh, So it's it's actually like I kind of feel like, well, shit, I kind of have obligation, right? Like, I'm in this weird, unique alternate timeline uh, reality where I get to engage in, like, really doing this kind of archival work. Mm-hmm. that I never expected to become an expert on or or know anything about. Like, I was going to translate a Buddha and a Buddha Sutra and mm-hmm. uh, maybe study abroad for a while. Like, I, 
I didn't have any of these plans. Like, they just popped up. So <laughs> yeah. it's been really cool to see how it's evolved all on its own. And it's really yeah. been the fandom that evolved it. Like, uh, I try not to feel overwhelmed, but it's a lot. Like, they're, like, like it's not just me who's, like, the weirdo who's, like, I'm going to translate all the books. Like, there's a lot of people who are exceptionally well organized who have a very similar like cataloging mindset and sharing mindset um deeply yeah. intellectual people i mean it's 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 been the best part of the whole journey is just the people that you meet along the way have been so cool and interesting yeah yeah and it's funny because i'm looking at my questions and i realized the next question i was going to ask you was what's the rarest thing you think you have and i'm like well i think you already kind of answered that <laughs> no we didn't answer the rarest um I mean, these, these doujinshis from 1992, from... Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying rare. to think more of, like, official, since the, uh, doujinshis oh, yeah. really are their own uh, category, but... Um, that's Yeah, I guess that... Yeah, what's the most official, rarest thing you have hmm. on the site, what do you think? I mean, we found, like, a couple of, like, outlier magazines that have, like, interviews or photo shoots with Naoko Takeuchi mm-hmm. that uh, haven't really gotten attention... Um, what? Uh, you mean for Sailor Moon stuff specifically? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, my the rarest Sailor Moon item we own. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I should have anticipated this one. Uh, you know why we can't answer? Uh, I'll be frank. Um, I'm an anti hoarder, mm, and okay. I. I, I get like a lot of rare objects or something, but then I digitize them and then we turn the scraps into art or we, we've sold it on our garage sale or we really haven't kept a lot of it around once we right. digitize it. And that's been kind of interesting too, is like um, there's kind of this subculture of people that make art out of used misdream supplies, question mark. Hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, but like I've, I, so I once saw this chick on YouTube, she like made a binder where she like printed out all of our translations of uh, like a magazine or something and put it in a laminated binder and like made her own book out of our translations. And I was like, hmm. WTF, this is incredible. <laughs> like, yeah, um, we had another woman who bought like our um, torn apart versions of Nakayoshi magazine where Sailor Moon was first serialized when Naoko was like 20. Um, and she would make like origami and bookmarks out of it and like all kinds of paper mache and like just incredible, super creative art. Yeah. So that's been interesting. Uh, so the rarest thing we own is mm-hmm. maybe hard to say because what's in the house right now is very minimal. And actually we're in the process of cataloging and selling even more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe, maybe right now it would be our Sailor Moon art books. The, mm. what do you call them? Oh, yeah. Volumes three and four. Yeah, maybe volumes three and four. Uh, but if we had to talk about the rarest thing on the site, yeah, um, it would be the translation of the Infinity Collection art book. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a really close friend um, who lives up in Boston. She's also a, a fairly well-known Sailor Moon collector. She goes by Saki. And she helped share. She owns this art book. And I think there were only 10,000 copies ever printed in the world. And uh, she and another lady named Meg Tyler, she's another, um, fair, I would say, fairly well-known Sailor Moon collector as well. Um, the two of them collaborated and actually um, helped us, um, without damaging these extremely rare books, digitize um, in very high-quality DPI these books, these extremely rare Infinity Art Book collections. 
Um, and what they are is basically at the end of Sailor Moon, every famous anime and manga artist in the industry during the 90s basically put together a collaborative art book, like a fanzine about Sailor Moon. So Naoko Takeuchi contributes like a few of the art pieces, but uh, also like the creator of um, another famous show from the 90s in Japan was called Goldfish Panic. Um, the artist of Goldfish Panic contributed to the Infinity Art Book. So many, many famous people contributed. And there's um, liner notes, which are um, in the manga industry, like the the artist will make like little tiny blurbs about what they're drawing and what this character design looks like, or like a farewell note or some kind of kind message. Um, and it was really cool to, first of all, know two people in America who actually own this book. Because yeah. WTF, like it, it was published in the early 90s. So by the time we were scanning it, it was already like 10 years or so out of print, maybe even 15 years out of print. Uh, and we had people who were willing to trust us. I mean, these items are very expensive. I don't mm-hmm. want to talk too much money, but it's maybe an unreasonable amount of money to spend on an art book. And they allowed us like it's fragile, the kind of digitization work we do. And there's a real risk that we can break the spine or irreparably bend or damage the paper especially Mm -hmm. because the inserts are made out of very delicate rice paper um so that project i would say is absolutely not only did we uh digitize it all but then we also translated it all into english for the first time there's never been an official translation um so that's probably the rarest artifact that we've come across um but we've gotten uh all kinds of cool shit over the years like um one of our patrons world travels professionally. He's a consultant and he goes to Thailand and he goes to Hong Kong and he goes to Russia and he goes everywhere. And he sends us versions of Sailor Moon in all of these different languages. Um, so we've had, like, if you check our Raws page, we have like an international Raws section now to where we have Sailor Moon content, not just in English and Japanese. I mean, now we've like, we have to start keeping track of which countries we're representing and which like we've now become a global data catalog in a sense yeah for these resources so uh yeah it's way too much (laughs) (laughs) so it's hard to say like what's rarest you know right yeah yeah no i mean it's all rare (laughs) because how could i come across as an american that speaks no polish Mm -hmm. all of the polish language editions of sailor moon you know like i how did that how did that pop up the universe provided you know yeah Yeah, yeah. I think I mean everything's rare on here, so for the most part, especially, you know, it's so hard to find so many things now. Um, especially since like I feel like for a while there was just not a lot of Sailor Moon merchandise out. Like you said, like a lot of things went out of print. Like they stopped like really selling T-shirts until a few years ago. Um, at least over here. So yeah, it's just yeah, this is great. <laughs> just have it. So thanks again. Um. And so you mentioned before how, like, Silver Millennium was kind of, like, your favorite. I noticed you also have Silver Millennium Masquerade Ball, which I still need to attend one year. Um, How did the idea for that come about? Uh, That was actually an idea Ellie's had for Mm -hmm. some time. Um, So I'm going to hand over the microphone to her for how she uh, came up. Um. So, yeah, uh, I can't entirely take credit. Okay, so I don't know that we'll ever hold an, another Sailor Moon Masquerade ball, frankly. Mm. Um, it's been maybe, almost, yeah, four, 
three, four years old. Yeah, three years since we did the last one. And it was mm-hmm. the first one. So I think that might have been a one and done kind of deal. Got it. Um, truthfully, it was really cool. I've always had this idea. I've always loved, first of all, um, even though I'm deeply maybe awkward and socially anxious and um, professionally, I do programming and data analytics. So I'm very maybe not good with people. (laughs) Maybe emotional intelligence could use some tweaking kind of personality. Uh, Anyway. I disagree. Go ahead. But I I love systems design. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So like engaging in, let's design the most badass Sailor Moon fucking dance floor Mm -hmm. bullshit over the top cosplay party that I always wanted to attend as a little girl. Like, let's just do it. Yeah. Um, and I, I had floated the ideas for years, and uh, I had a friend, um, her name was Lisa, and she runs the Sailor Moon Meetup group um, based in New York City, and I think they actually are global, um, so they have, like, these Sailor Moon Meetups all over, in, like, major cities all over the world. I think she runs and organizes about. this, um, yeah. and, and we've been friends with her, gosh, at, like, 15 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Is this, uh, um... Sorry, the International Sailor Moon Day is that? I think yes, 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 yes. Yeah. The found, yes, okay. she is the founder. Yes, she's the founder of International Sailor Moon Day. That's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, at the time, like we were starting to have these like New York City Sailor Moon meetups. It was like in the very early stages before International Sailor Moon thing. Sailor Moon Day was a thing um, mm-hmm. when we were still kind of. I mean, it used to be very informal. A group of Sailor Moon fans in New York City in the New York City area would kind of meet up. Um, Usually in Manhattan, like, and go to Koreatown and do karaoke, go out to dinner, and then, like, maybe go to Kinokuniya or book off in Manhattan, maybe mm-hmm. go to Chinatown if we were super adventurous that day. Um, and then uh, and then we would call it a day, right? And so it went from being this very informal, like, karaoke Sailor Moon fan club of maybe 10 people. And then Lisa took it to this whole other level and started really expanding out. And... Um, there was a gal at the time who was um, working as a, a producer. I want to say it like uh, I want to say Al Jazeera Network or something mm-hmm. in New York City. But anyways, uh, somebody who knew like camera work and knew how to do like a professional sound studio and knew how to do um, yeah that kind of work. And so it was really cool. She was um, Lisa's friend, and so she encouraged Lisa like, "Hey, branch this out, branch this out." And so Lisa was like, "Damn, like." Uh, like, should we do, like, an International Sailor Moon Day? Should we do this, that, or the other? And I was like, look, I don't know about Sailor Moon International Day, but I think it's a cool idea, but I want to do something a lot more involved than that. And I was being a total jerk. Like, now that I look back on it, like, what she did was absolutely ab- elaborate and uh, completely involved. Like, it's a global service that she coordinates. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, no, I want to throw a princess party. Like, that was literally <laughs> the energy. was like... No, I don't want a day recognizing Sailor Moon. I want one Sailor Moon party to end all the Sailor Moon parties. And I was being a total brat about it. Sailor um, Moonzilla. And, yeah, like I was being a total, like, yeah, I was a total ass. I'm, I'm still an ass, like, by the way. Like, yeah. it's still the same thing, but. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I floated the idea by Lisa, and she was like, cool, lovely idea. I absolutely don't have the time or resources for that hard pass. And so, mm-hmm. years passed, and, uh. The first, I want to say it was the first International Sailor Moon Day officially in New York City years later. It was one of the two. But anyway, Mm -hmm. Lisa invited us to um, participate in an interview there. And we ended up running reception at this event. It was, like, absolutely crazy. So, like, we were planning to just be there to speak for, like, 20 minutes. We got there and, like, there was no, uh, how do you call, day of, like, manager, like, planning manager Mm. for the event. 
So there yeah. was like a check-in line of 300 people and like nobody had tickets or wristbands. And uh, so it was like all hands on deck, you know? Yeah. So, so I was like, hell yeah, I'm in this. And so me and Dan volunteered to run the front desk. And it was like, it was a disaster. It was a total disaster, but we had so much fun. Uh, yeah. and, and the people who came were like really chill about the whole thing. And one of the people, a very uh, lovely couple that I met there, um, named Eliza and Andrea. And I think anybody who, um, for certain, attended Sailor Moon Millennium Ball or was interested in it or who was, like, kind of following our social media around the time that we were planning it would be deeply familiar with these two. Um, These two women are, are frankly... um, (laughs) I want to highlight and lift them up because they are so freaking talented i want to watch my mouth but they are just some of the most genuine kind incredibly badass powerful women a lovely married couple i mean just a joy and a delight to be around um and they were critical it actually smmb would not have happened without either of them yeah. they they actually i would say um yeah if we if we consider it like the, the cast of characters who was on staff i mean uh there's no contest like uh, what Eliza and Andrea contributed to that effort was foundational. It was enormous. Um, we happened to have Andrea Miller, who um, now works at, in a publishing company, a major publishing company in New York City. She's a senior level art director um, and just absolutely talented. Um, I think you can find her stuff. Um, maybe, maybe you can find some links to put in the description. Um, but yeah. she, she has her own freelance work and she's really quite great. Um, she's She's been uh, nationally recognized in the New York Times and other places. I mean, she's really uh, a great professional artist, design artist. Um, and Eliza, her wife, is frankly one of the most talented writers I've ever worked with, um, with a compassion and a grace and a deep inbuilt prose and natural talent for working with the English language um, and a deep empath. She's really great at connecting with people. I've always admired her. Um, and I still do very much. I respect them both tremendously. They're, they're, um, I look up to both of them. Yeah. They, um, they so sound we amazing. Loved, I mean, we did, I mean, we, but uh, at the same time, I want to honor the fact that, um, we did this kind of like for the first time, I mean, I had had some corporate event planning experience and we had like everybody on staff kind of had just enough knowledge to be dangerous, but like nobody had for sure, like, hi, we're going to run like a thousand person operation or something like that, you know? So we learned a lot along the way. That's what I get at is like, we learned a lot of hard knock lessons and we worked our butts off and it was tremendously fun and exhausting and stressful and fun, like, and fun. (laughs) Yeah. And fun. The most important part. And we got to meet even more cool people. Um, Yeah. So it's actually, it's very timely that you bring that up. I think um, we've gotten many inquiries about, mm-hmm. are we going to have another SMMB? And I think it's time to be honest and disclose that uh, I don't think so because, mm-hmm. um, you know, three years ago I relocated from the New York uh, area to mm-hmm. central Texas. Um, my career, um, my professional career is something that I, I'm deeply passionate about. I really do love um, programming and analytics. And so mm-hmm. Sailor Moon is still very much my childhood and my hobby, but it's not, I, I can't, I don't give it the kind of space in my life that I used to in earlier days. I love it. I honor that time and I respect it, but it's mm-hmm. a chapter that's closed out. Yeah. Um, and frankly, uh, after we moved, Eliza and I talked for a 
gosh, years and thought about, okay, what are alternate cities we could host this in? Um, what kind of different themes could we do? Do we want to do this like every three years, every five years? Like what would be a good cadence? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and talking through it um, and trying to actually reach out to vendors and get things moving. Um, it's not an effort that one can uh, collaborate at that level of detail. I mean, I think many people who attended uh, the masquerade would say that uh, Andrea did an over-the-top exceptional job with the design. I mean, the lighting, the staging, Mm -hmm. uh, the aesthetic experience, the immersive aesthetic experience that I think Eliza and Andrea provided to the guests um, is something that the fandom hadn't seen before. These two ladies deserve the credit. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, how do you replicate that? How do you, how do you outdo that? And what it takes to really design something that deep of an immersive aesthetic experience, it cannot be done loosely across Skype channels. This is like one of the the limitations (laughs) we noticed about trying to work telecommute, uh, you know, how do you telecommute, um, touring a vendor space? Like when we found, um, like Hall of Springs was the the venue that we used for the Silver Millennium Masquerade Ball. And I chose Mm -hmm. it specifically because of its architecture. It's Mm -hmm. marble columns. It looks very much like the Moon Palace. And when it was uplit in our custom palette, it looked like the Moon Palace. I mean, it was like incredible. You felt transported. I mean, Eliza made magic. Yeah. Um, We had thought about, uh, what if we did like a Chicago jazzy type 1920s flapper uh, instead of a Sailor Moon Masquerade Ball this time it's New Year's Eve 2020 uh, flappers Gatsby Sailor Moon style ball maybe right something like that Mm -hmm. how do you tour virtually like yeah uh, ship gardens in Chicago how do you tour like like you can't go to these venues like you have to show up physically in the space to feel it to understand the acoustics to Yeah, and how do you manage those travel expenses, yeah. and and how do you yeah, and how do you market it across regions? Now, um, it became clear that we were embarking in a, a trans uh, state, a, a cross state communications and and corporate enterprise that was a little beyond our capacity to manage um, as part time mm-hmm. Sailor Moon fans, mm-hmm. uh, but we loved it. Um, we, I mean, like I would love to attend something like it before. I would love. Mm-hmm. I mean, but. Uh, and we've known some people who have put together other really, really cool Sailor Moon events. I know even uh, Viz Media put together like a masquerade ball, right? They I think did, so. Like, yeah, uh, I was just thinking about that. I remember um, even uh, Osabu, uh, the managing editor for uh, Nakutaku Chin Kodansha, um, they had a uh, one night uh, ball like event for a few hours uh, associated with, uh, I forget the name of the convention, it's in Houston. Uh, but it's, it's an, an oh, anime Matsuri. Magical Girl was... Day? No. Oh, okay. Anime Matsuri. Yeah, hmm. in uh, Houston uh, a couple of years back. And it, it was actually funny because like the two of them, uh, Osabu and Viz, did their things like literally like the year after ours. So we, we thought that was amusing in, in itself. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, I mean, it, it's nice to see that other people doing such type of events and yeah we, we would love to attend uh, <laughs> yeah no, i totally get I, it i would really <laughs> love to be on the other side yeah. not that i didn't have fun running the uh, thing being <laughs> in the front end uh, greeting all the guests and everything that uh, we all did but it, it, it was nice to just be uh, 
enjoying it uh, fully. Yeah. <laughs> no, as a um, as a person, this doesn't compare, I would think, but I've I've covered a lot of concerts as a, a pop culture journalist, and it's so nice now to just go to a show and not have to worry about like taking pictures or writing notes or interviewing anybody. It's just like, oh, I just get to go and, and enjoy it. Like it's it's yeah. Yeah, underrated was, experience. Had, I think I can say for everyone, there were collectively, I want to say about 30 people that were helping us, not not including like catering staff or any of the venue staff, mm-hmm. just the core operation staff, I want to say was between 20 and 30 people. Yeah. Um, what does it take to do all of those table settings? What does it take to do all of that uplighting? Um, yeah. Or like setting up the orchestra or like the back, if you see um, behind the we had a live 18 piece orchestra first of all that was crazy like um and i want to talk about that like my bro this guy bobby um he runs iconic sarah symphony and we'll drop a link i think Mm -hmm. too um but the guy's a professional music conductor like living in new york city and doing music professionally and succeeding okay which nobody does except him because he's lovely right. and he's obsessed with sailor moon oh and by the way he has a japanese best friend who wrote to toei and got rights to be able to publicly perform these these iconic sailor moon soundtrack pieces wow oh and he happened to be my friend and i reached out to him and uh i was like hey like uh what's the sailor symphony thing that you're thinking of doing he's like yeah like I'm kind of a composer and like I, I kind of am I'm I'm like a band director and I'm a symphony director and I'm a highly trained musician, but like I'm also gay and love Sailor Moon and it's been my shit since I'm a little kid. And I'm like, hell yeah, you need to have a Sailor Moon <laughs> symphony. And he totally did. Okay. And he's blown it out of the water and I can't take credit for none of it. Like he is a, yeah, an, an incredibly, like incredibly in talent, talented individual and business owner. And I mean, just amazing um anyway we reached out to him and we're like hey uh how would you like to do an orchestra for four hours live at a sailor moon masquerade and he was like cool we'll do a custom concert just for you wow wow (laughs) and uh there were were, like trained musicians from juilliard who performed um it was it was over the top i mean it was just ridiculous Mm -hmm. like the, the coincidences that lined up yeah. Um, some other highlights. There's a very lovely gal, um, friends with her on Facebook too, and her name is Karen. Um, she is a professional. I, I don't know, professional, competitive, gold star ballroom dancer. Oh wow! Uh, and there's some media of like out of her performing during the masquerade ball uh, with her partner, and they are both just ridiculous. Like. And they were like, hey, um, can we just, like, really casually, because we're lovely people, just offer the night before the ball to teach everybody ballroom dancing for free? Like, can we just have a couple of hours to just teach 200 people how to ballroom dance for free oh for you? Gosh. And we were like, what? Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, please. Yes. The answer is yes, yes, and yes, right. and how soon? You did not need to ask. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And she happened to be living um, upstate near me in Saratoga Springs. And she's a, I mean, like, this is an area that is known for producing highly skilled ballroom dancers. Like, the Saratoga oh. Performing Arts Theater is there. The Saratoga Dance Ballet Troupe is there. Like, it's, it's incredible. And these people just happened to be, like, hardcore Sailor Moon fans. And they were like, yeah, we're going to do a custom ballroom. Uh, and orchestra piece like <laughs> it was it was incredible like I can't take credit for that like none of us can take credit for that like it wasn't mm-hmm. just one person like there were all these different people on staff that brought something so powerful and deeply unique to the table 
And I wonder, how do you, can you really plan something like that? Or does the universe have to collectivize in a way and give you that wish? And I feel like that's kind of what happened more with the ball is like, we had this kind of dream bubble in a capsule. And I remember the day that we worked that event, we started at what? I think Eliza and people were on deck at 8 a.m. Yeah, it's definitely in the morning. And we didn't stop unloading until 4 a.m. the next morning. I didn't get back to my apartment until 6 a.m. the next morning. And then I got pneumonia, okay? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, we were, like, moving furniture out of this venue in negative right. degree weather in a, in, a, in a blizzard in upstate New York in the Probably deep not of winter, okay? The like, we were closer to Canada. Like, it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It was ridiculous what we did. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think, frankly, possible to organically replicate but it was mm-hmm. such a blast. It was so much fun. Yeah. That sounds super fun. And you're giving me so many more people that need to be on this podcast. So thank you. We're going to have to talk about it afterwards. Of you need to like send me all the names and um, contact information. But um, yeah, that's so cool. I'm yeah, I totally get why it won't happen again. Um, I'm hoping someone else does it so you guys can attend. Um, and then in the meantime, we of course have, you're welcome, we have International Sailor Moon Day, you know, we have um, Magical Girl Day in in Texas, and, you know, a few other Sailor Moon related things we can go to in the meantime. And then there's Sailor Boom Party, I don't know if you've heard of them, they, um, they've they been doing a lot of Zoom um, parties, yeah, which has been really fun. That sounds pretty, pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, I went to their Sailor Moon brunch yesterday, which was Ooh. interesting, yeah, brunch party, it was fun. <laughs> And so I actually saw on your website, you learned Japanese, um, Ellie, I'm sorry, that um, you learned Japanese because of Sailor Moon. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah Who it's, does that? You know, I have to commend you because that's what I wanted to do. I was just like, I want to learn Japanese. I can watch Sailor Moon and read it. And I never did. So I commend you. Can you can totally do it. You can totally do it. Uh, do it. Anybody yeah. can totally do it. I'm really convinced of this. What it takes is being like uh, willing to study way too much. Mm. Like it's super, like it's just, you're going to, at least for me, I, I'm not naturally smart. I'm just like diligent. Uh, so for me, it's just been like diligence. And uh, I've been studying, I wouldn't say I know Japanese. I would say I'm a lifelong learner and mm. I've been studying for 17 years now. Wow. Um. And the depth of understanding that I have now is very different than the depth I have understanding I had one year into my studies, five years into my studies, or ten, right? You, mm-hmm. you always learn that additional context over time, even as an English speaker, right? We all do this. Oh, yeah. Um, so now it's kind of like a weird spot where sometimes, and I think many people who do any kind of creative endeavor, will this will speak to them. You look back at your early original work. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. I wish I could tear this all down so no one can ever see what an unprepared amateur I really was. And I have definitely had tantrums, like, about Sailor Moon, about Mistream, about Sailor Moon Masquerade Ball. And Dan's always the one who talks me off the ledge where I'm just like, no, tear it off of the Internet. No one should see my shame of when I was a younger baby (laughs) translator who made mistakes. Like, uh... It's it's part of my history too. Like it's mm-hmm. it's the honest record of my own childhood and engaging in this mis- um, this media. So yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, I hope that answers your question. I'm not sure I did. I think maybe I trailed off course. No, I think I think you answered. Um, I think and I totally 
can relate. I have many articles online from years ago that I'm just like, please take this down. This is horrible writing. I don't know what I, what was going on. But <laughs> I've got <laughs> like the same said, thing too. I've been uh, mm-hmm. running sites for over a couple of decades now for Sailor Moon, so I've got some old stuff and they're like, ah, mm. uh, this didn't <laughs> age well, but at the same time, I'm not going to willingly <laughs> delete something because I also feel that it can show like an evolution mm-hmm. of people over time and thoughts over time. Yeah. So that's why I never willingly delete uh, any of my things from the past, even though I totally could and sometimes I want to, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's especially cool, I think, with web design because... Um, it's just so awesome to like go back, especially like with Wayback Machine, like to go back and see a site before, like even if it's not like perfect or it's just different, just like really captures the time, like not much else things can, mm-hmm. like seeing websites over time. Yeah. Um, and Dan, do you also speak Japanese? I do not. Or, or uh, we can accurately say I've been lazy over the years and uh, not studying it. I did take a couple of years of Japanese in uh, early college, Mm -hmm. and I really didn't uh, pick up anything after that, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm in the same boat with you. You actually did more than me, so... I commend you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> to, um, I can ask both of you, though, though, since, like, Ellie, you've learned, and, and Dan, you um, took some classes. Do you, either of you have any tips for anyone who wants to learn Japanese? Uh, definitely repetition. I remember uh, one thing that uh, definitely helped me out uh, during my time in the college classes was any, every at least a few times a week, I would write my kana charts, you know, by heart, because you know, you've got to know the symbols, mm-hmm. and you've got to get that practice in, and I can't, as soon as you lose that practice, you, you lose the knowledge, and w- within a year of me taking the classes, because I had stopped practicing as actively as I did during those two years, it just dwindled, and right. that, that's really the most important thing I, that, that I could possibly say. Would you would you agree? Uh, not quite. I have a very I have a very different perspective from Dan. Um, but I think I I might be an edge case because I think many people don't maybe go to the extremes. I went to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Um, so. Uh, and also, you might have to cut me off, Victoria, because I might become Professor Ellie for a second and start oh. lecturing. Um, but. I, I started actually not just learning Japanese at a young age, but also being responsible to teach it to others at a young age. Um, I worked as a TA in college teaching like introductory Japanese to people. I worked as a private tutor for many, many years, um, in addition to working as a technical translator. And so I believe anybody can learn Japanese. Anybody can learn any language. And the things that are the differentiators um, between the people who do it successfully and the people who don't. I think Dan, I agree with Dan where he says consistency is important. It's Mm -hmm. having the dogged willingness to no matter what, every single day, push yourself to study for 30 minutes or an hour. Come higher, like water, high, how does that expression go? Hell or high water. Hell or high water? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm forgetting my own English idioms. You see, this is terrible. Uh, But uh, you have to be diligent. You have to be disciplined. That's important. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's for any kind of educational discipline, period. Um, but some tips that I would recommend um, that I've 
found useful for students over the years and that I find useful for myself as a student and a lifelong learner um, is one, being consistent about your study time and two, immersing yourself. And when I, when I say immersing yourself, it doesn't mean you have to move to Japan. Um, for sure, when I was, I started studying Japanese when I was 15 Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the resources to go to Japan. Like, that was not available to me. Um, so how did I do it instead? I, I immersed myself in what I could make available to me. I listened obsessively to Japanese music. Um, I used to study, like, and translate Japanese lyrics, like, literally with a physical dictionary in hand and just buy grammar dictionaries and see if I could puzzle out how to translate it in English. And I really sucked when I started. I really, I was terrible. You know, like for, for most of it, I was terrible. Um, but it kept showing up. And so you can pick any medium you want. I'm really convinced. You can learn Japanese through music. You can learn it through television shows or media. You can learn it through a manga series. You can learn it. Nowadays, the kids do really cool stuff. And I'm really impressed with this is like, uh, I have, I still take Japanese lessons. Um, I take, uh, I'm studying for JLPT level one. So I'm like being a weirdo, but, uh, I have a tutor and anyway, she delivers all of our lessons online app, which is like a Japanese messaging oh, app, yeah. like Skype or Microsoft teams. Like and WhatsApp. so we can telecommute Japanese mm-hmm. lessons and hold conversations every single week or every t- couple times a week. Um, with her, I might focus specifically on like on this stage in my career. Okay. I need to know every vocabulary about business intelligence and semiconductor technology mm-hmm. go. Right. So uh, anyway, but it's about me making that intentional space to say, okay, today I'm going to um, keep honing this skill and I'm doing it in the format of having a Skype conversation every week with a native speaker that's right. challenging me at my level of competence. So the way that you do it is different. I think everybody is a unique learning style and that has to be respected. Some people are going to be auditory learners. Some people are going to have to learn by doing. That's how I have to learn. Some people learn by seeing. I know very many um, uh, people who are incredible at reading and writing Japanese. They're just very visual thinkers. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like to lie to myself and pretend I'm one of these people because I study kanji. But uh, all of these different ways are valid to connect to study Japanese. And it's about really experimenting with every different kind of learning format and finding what works for you and then being disciplined. I, and what's so cool about modern, modern technology, and this is like sidebar, it's so much easier to learn Japanese now than it was like 20 years ago. <laughs> like, can I give the elder millennial like complaint for a minute? Oh, yeah, okay. please because, do. Because my son is Gen Z, okay? Mm-hmm. And this kid has an app for everything. Like yeah. these days there's a there's an app I wish I had in college. This is called Kanji Quizzer. You can get it on mm-hmm. the iPhone and we'll we'll figure out a link, but it sorts it. Like if you want to get a licensed like if you want to become a licensed internationally recognized Japanese to English translator, you can get for free an app on your phone that'll just teach you all of the kanji set as flashcards just for free. Um, or nowadays you can just, uh, go on, uh, applications like Wani Kani is like another great one to like teach you Japanese radicals or get you familiarized with Japanese phonetics and Hatsuon, like pronunciation and, um, reading and writing and, and grammar. And, um, there's all kinds of, um, incredible dictionaries and YouTube resources, man. Like 
right now I'm finding like YouTube channels that are for free. That's like all resources for studying JLPT N1 um, and learning Japanese conversationally from native speakers who are just like cool millennials with a webcam who are interested in teaching this stuff for free. It's incredible. Like you don't even need to go to a university anymore. You just have to be willing to show up and work your ass off. That's revolutionary. That's, I mean, I, that's so incredible. And I may, I feel hella jealous, you know, like, um, my son is like a little anime fan. He likes Naruto and Shonen stuff. And it's, oh, it's yeah. cool. He's like 12, you know, he's like, yeah, Naruto and Bleach is cool. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, it's cool. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to learn Japanese. I'm like, right on, dude. How are you going to learn Japanese? I'm like, here's a book. Here's some sheets. Here's a pen and a paper. <laughs> because when I learned as a teacher, like we learned like uh, different teaching styles. It changes over time. Like mm-hmm. I learned when I was an early instructor, always make your students use graphite pencils or crayons when they're learning to write Japanese characters. And I thought, what the hell? That's a weird request. Like, why? Mm-hmm. And the educator at the time explained to me, well, remember when you went to kindergarten and you were learning to draw block letters? Back in the 80s and the 90s and for the 70s and, and back in the day, you had maybe chalk. You had these these kind of crude instruments and they were intentionally used to instruct children how to read and write. And the psychology behind it, or the neurology behind it, I suppose, is more accurate to say, is that when you use an instrument that you have to press hard down on with paper, when your tactical senses and your muscles are engaged in drawing the, the shape of the letter R, for example, you learn that character much faster. You build that muscle memory, and your language neuropsis build faster and stronger. And so when I was a young educator, they insisted, like, your students will learn hiragana katakana by drawing them in repetition a hundred times. They will build muscle memory, right? So there was a lot more of this repetition, manual format of learning that was very popular. And that I frankly agreed with, you know, that was my, I I think when you're trying to memorize 2000 kanji, uh, perhaps it's practical to realize and admit that some rote memorization and just some hard ass work is going to be put in like you just you just have to put in the time there's no way around that um but in in like now it's not like that and i i said to my son okay you have to learn to read and write japanese he goes why i can text and type in japanese (laughs) and like it's true like i watched when my son went to kindergarten yeah they they taught block lettering like they teach the kids to read and write but he also started computers class when he was five and can type mm-hmm. faster than he can write yeah you know what i mean and he's he's a he's a more digital native even than my you know generation was so the learning formats how do you reach that these younger or different demographics right their learning styles are going to be different their learning is so enhanced by technology in a way that i don't know that i can fully fairly speak to because uh I'm not that generation, right? But um, it's incredible to me. It's so encouraging how much um, lower the barrier to entry is to studying Japanese seriously if you're just willing to put in the time. Yeah. Um, it's, so, yeah, maybe I can throw out some links to some resources, but I think uh, as somebody who's, like, really out there and hardcore, mm-hmm. th- that would be my suggestion. Yeah, I totally get that. And it's funny, too, because for me, you know, also millennial, I'm going to throw out my angry millennial um it's 
actually harder for me now with things so more accessible because I'm it feels like oh I can do it at any time where before it felt like it really had to be intentional when you wanted to like read something or do something or learn something because it just it was so much harder to like access it and now it's just like oh I can download this app at any time I can I can learn this at any time and it just makes it easier for me to put it off but that's another issue (laughs) but yeah it's really great that we have all these tools now and I actually did um um, try a similar app for when I was trying to learn Korean or Hangul. Um, and that was really helpful for a bit, actually. And I, I was, it was, yeah, I learned a little bit. So that was cool. That's incredible. Oh, wait, yeah. so you, you also speak like Korean? No, 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 not at all. I <laughs> learned a little bit. <laughs> How did you come <laughs> through to study app. Korean? That is so cool. Um, through K dramas. I really love K dramas. So, yeah, girl. And I really wanted to go to Korea and I wanted to be able to speak. And I also like I guess this is like the similar thing with you and Sailor Moon is I um I really wanted to like not have to wait for episodes to be subtitled to yes. watch them. Because <laughs> sometimes it takes forever. Um, so I was just like, I'm gonna learn Korean so I don't have to wait for subtitles and I can just watch episode whenever, not have to worry about it. Um and and I didn't I did not become fluent at all. Um but now I can like I recognize some words and um, I can kind of like understand a little bit, but I'm not I'm not fluent at all. Like I don't even know if I'd call myself beginners. But yeah, all I can say it's... is "Anyang, haseyo." <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's that's the funnest thing to say. <laughs> I said that a lot too. Um, was actually I went to South Korea and that was like I said it like every day, but it was fun. Um, but. Um, other thing though, we've talked a lot about Sailor Moon here, and I just want to like put in a little bit of space for something else. Um, I ask some people sometimes, like, what else do you stand? Like, for me, I love Beyonce, I also love Cowboy Bebop and Gurren Lagan. Um, I love Boy Meets World, it's one of my favorite shows. <laughs> do you guys have anything else that you um, really like outside of Sailor Moon? Like a lot of a lot of the '90s anime, uh, that mm-hmm. that generation, like always, like just j- just hits me. I like love you know the Tenchi, Magnet Knight, Ray Earth. Mm-hmm. Like anything from the '90s. Also, Cowboy Bebop. That was amazing when I first saw that. Yeah. Still amazing today. But that, that so was good. like jaw dropping when I first watched that. Yeah, those are all good ones. Classic. For me, for me, I don't really watch much anime, truthfully, mm-hmm. um, or or even read much manga. But mm-hmm. um, there are there are two series outside of Sailor Moon that I would say are of particular obsession to me. To the mm-hmm. point where, um, when I was considering mis- like opening Miss Dream, I actually thought about instead launching fan sites for these other series mm-hmm. instead. Um, so the would have been Miss Dream series instead of Sailor Moon, um, there is a perhaps underappreciated show that was had a limited release in North America called Blue Seed. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, how do you call supernatural horror, but it also incorporates, um, Japanese Shinto, um, and Buddhist beliefs. It's really, it's a really cool show. It didn't really get much. I, I don't think it got really good attention, um, or ratings in the U S um, but it was really popular in Japan in the nineties around like maybe a year or two after Salem Moon finished up. Mm. Um, so that was a um, it, it. Much of that show has still not been translated into English, and it has a very prolific fandom, a Japanese fandom, um, 
still not as big as Sailor Moon, but I it was one of the smaller known series that I just always really appreciated and wished I had the time to just sit and translate. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Um, another favorite that I wish I had time to tackle and translate is Rose of Versailles. Oh, yeah. Um, Classic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if it's fair to say that I love that show because it's an anime. Like, I'm just in love with Oscar. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, like hi. Like, can I please just have 100 more years in this lifetime so that I can just translate everything to do with Rose of Versailles? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that was another strong contender. Um, and then... Mm-hmm. Frankly, Revolutionary Girl Utena. Oh, yeah. Classic. It's a classic. Um, but mm-hmm. that one's deeply personal to me, too. Um, mm-hmm. My oldest female best friend in the whole wide world, lovely woman named Molly Barrist. Um, she's also she's an artist. She lives in Tampa. Um, she introduced me to Utena. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we weren't supposed to be watching it. Like, <laughs> like we were two Jewish girls up to no good. Like we weren't supposed to be looking at this deeply erotic kind of lesbian queer story, right. but we were both deeply queer and obsessed with it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, you know, like these like little frummy Jewish girls, like hiding out in each other's bedrooms when we were like, you know, 13 and 14, like we were in our adolescence and like, it was a new fresh thing that had like come out on DVD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were like obsessed with Utena, and I think uh, everybody's obsessed with Utena. If they haven't seen it, they they just I don't know. If you don't like Utena, I don't know what to say. Like, it's lovely, and I have to humble brag just for a second while we're on this topic. Okay, Please do. Uh, many years ago, um, Miss Dream was interviewed at Animazement in North Carolina, and I want to say it was two thousand nine, but I'd have to look up the date. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we had given um, like three different panels that day. It was like exhausting. We had done a talk about. Um, Sailor Moon Collection, actually the two ladies that I mentioned earlier who owned the Infinity Art Book, um, they had actually brought their collection for display at this convention and like had it behind glass cases and allowed basically public to come and see their exhibit. It was really cool. Um, and I got to speak on that panel as a translator of some of these like really rare Sailor Moon, um, they called them like artifacts, which I think uh, that might be a little over the top, but antiques maybe? Uh, I'm not sure, but... Uh, it was really cool. So we had done that, and then we had had another, like, uh, Sailor Moon fan Q&A panel. Um, but what was really, like, interesting is that we also had, like, a fan sub panel. Like, we had a Miss Dream-focused panel. And we had, like, two or three people packed in. It was, like, one of our very first public appearances. And I was, like, this little rebellious asshole who was, like, the man's not going to hold me down. I'm going to pass out bootlegs of my fan subs at an anime convention. Truly. And I did. And I had, like, these um, little white gift bags with little white envelopes with little pink bows with the little pink Nakayoshi Sailor Moon bunny on it and everybody who attended this convention got like a collection on like DVD bootlegs that we created from like me and Dan sat and like made them ourselves um maybe it was me and Jen I don't maybe it was Jen but uh, maybe it must have been Jen but uh, anyway, we had, like, made – I mean, we had anticipated, like, two or three people were going to show up, and we had, like, stayed up all night crafting and, like, making bootlegs that we were going to give out for free to the audience. I mean, it was just, like, super stupid and fun and fun. Um, mm-hmm. So we had done all of that, and we were, like, wiped out. So, like, all of our stuff, all of our panels was, like, Saturday morning. And so by, like, Saturday afternoon, like, we were done for the day. And we're like, okay, we're at this anime convention. Cool. Let's, like, walk around and see what else is going on. And so we pick up the itinerary 
And we notice that the creator of Revolutionary Girl Utena is giving a two-hour Q&A session for any fan who wants to attend. And I'm like, it starts in 15 minutes. And I'm like hyperventilating like this little obsessive neurotic fangirl, truly. And I remember like noticing, oh my God, I have 15 minutes and there's like going to be a line. So I had better literally physically run down to the dealer's room and see what revolutionary girl Utana stuff I can buy that's merch to ask her to autograph for me because I love her. And like, I, I felt like I was unprepared and I felt like, the, like, this is so unlike me. Like I'm usually a hyper planner. And, like, I showed up and I was, like, didn't know that the creator of my one of my favorite series of all time just happened to be, like, there in North Carolina, right? Yeah. So, like, a jerk and an idiot, I, like, run to the dealer's room and I find some posters. And, like, they're, they're like, not even in great shape. And I'm, like, oh, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Like, God, why am I? I'm, like, beating myself up all the way back. And I make it in time and I get into the panel room where she is. And, uh, anyway, I walk into the room and it's empty. Okay. Huh. Okay. Weird. So she's sitting at a table. She has a professional. Um, he was so cute. He was a little Oji-san, little old Japanese uncle. Hmm. And uh, he's sitting next to her. And he's like, hello, did you want to talk? You're here to the, see the Utena panel? And uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, mm-hmm. Chi- Chiho Saito, that's her name. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it took me a second to come to it. But anyway, Chiho yeah. Saito is sitting there. Little tiny Asian woman, just, just sitting by herself like, just looking down, like flipping through, like maybe the convention tour book or something. And I'm looking around and I'm like, this can't be real life. Like nobody here knows or cares who she is. Or maybe we're early or maybe they're here setting up and we're not supposed to be here yet. Like I walked into the room feeling like we were in trouble. Like that was mm-hmm. like definitely the vibes. Is like, well, hello. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, it was me, um, a fellow named James, my friend Jen, and a couple of others at the time. And... For two hours, we had Chiho Saito to ourselves. And me and James uh, were both fluent in Japanese. And so we made friends with the translator and we started chatting with him. And we translated and we just asked all these questions about Utena. Mm-hmm. Um, just in a very, like, in an unplanned, very weird pop up kind of like subternatural, like, how the hell did this, this happen kind of way. Um, but she's really lovely. She's very soft-spoken. She's probably the shyest person I've ever encountered. She's one of those very low speakers like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was like, oh my God, I want to lean in to hear you, but I don't want to be in your personal bubble and gross you out, but you're so cute and I love your work. Um, so (laughs) anyway, uh, that was really cool. So, uh, there's actually, I, I, I never need to translate Utena, thankfully, because, um, one of my very favorite websites that's still like my favorite to this day is I think otori otori.new. Um, we can send out a link, but there, there is a very dedicated translation staff that is, has a community even older than Sailor Moon and Miss Dreams. I would say it is much larger and older and more established than the Miss Dream fan community. They have translated everything due to Utena. Um, and they've done a freaking bang up job of it um the ladies who run it are both also professional translators they've also have like this incredible network of um volunteers and patrons who um really make this like very similar global digital catalog of all resources available for free um so they're really cool uh so i felt like okay my choice is easy (laughs) (laughs) that is so cool i was just saying your life is so random and serendipitous and amazing um 
Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, I guess I'm trying to figure out why the room was empty. And I guess like, it's just so random, I think, for the creator to be at this convention in North Carolina that maybe just went over people's heads. Or I'm like, what What could have happened? But yeah i think there was like also some scheduling conflict because i remember oh, uh, that yeah. the guy who was like the voice actor the japanese voice actor of artemis was at the same convention oh wow and he had done like some other i think i don't know if it was gundam or some other shonen series that was like super mm-hmm. popular at the time so maybe that one was like giving it like had more tension and so it mm-hmm. got taken away but uh, frankly i'm not sure it was really um strange yeah but I still have the poster that she signed and that's what's really cool about it is like she yeah. had this and it was like I felt so embarrassed because we found like um and I can sidebar and we can edit this out but like um there's a particular like very blue and silver drawing that she does of like the little mouse from the show and she had like this special silver glitter pen that like exactly matched the mouse's tone and I had and like the poster I got it from the dealer's room and it was like all wrinkled and like crumpled up and I was like oh what a piece of crap looking poster but it's my favorite image Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, this one's a little bit old, right? And then she was, like, super polite and just signed it anyway. Like, <laughs> so it was cool. It was really cool. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it shows just how dedicated of a fan you are. Like, yes, I've had this poster for so many years. I've been carrying it around just so I would meet you. But no. Exactly. <laughs> just in the, the moment. <laughs> um, yeah. That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that's so cool. And so, like... Last question. Of course, fortunately, we have to start wrapping up. Um, just like Sailor Moon in the original dub version had the Sailor Moon says phrase at the end of every episode, I like to ask each guest what would their Sailor Moon says PSA be? So like Sailor Dan says and Sailor Ellie says. What would you say? Interesting. Mm-hmm. A piece of advice. Or, yeah. And I can share some previous ones if that would help. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like a, a, a personalized one that I would do. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> do you have anything, Ellie, while Dan's thinking? Sure. Um, mine is simple. Mm-hmm. Love thyself. Mm. I like it. Simple, but true <laughs> and effective <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. yeah I guess mine would be uh, be kind to others yeah that's a really good one and super important especially nowadays especially nowadays <laughs> yeah um and what is next for both of you and where can people find you if they want if you where can people find you where you want to be found <laughs> um I am also on Twitter at Mario Knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other site is uh, Sailor Moon Uncensored at smuncensored.com. That hasn't been updated in a number of years, but I'm keeping that online for as long as I can keep the wheel spinning. <laughs> yeah. And mm. uh, yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. Uh, for me, I think uh, I I really I don't connect much with the Sailor Moon community anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, these days I'm much more active, um, in business intelligence planning, um, and soft, uh, basically BI development, um, and data warehousing. Um, I 
am really interested in Power BI development um, and SSAS Tabular and some of these technologies. Um, so I participate, I think, more broadly um, in a professional sense, um, speaking about teaching these kinds of technology tools, teaching these programming languages. Um, but in a, very, in a very real sense, even though I've kind of pivoted out of the fandom, I still feel like I'm engaging in very much the same work, um, which is first bridging language barriers. Like one of the things that's so great about programming, and I think many people that we've encountered who are programming mindsets and uh, Salem and fans at the same time may agree. Um, there's, there's so much to Sailor Moon that there's almost this natural urge to kind of... Uh, put it in boxes and catalog it, right? Like, like the landscape is so broad and so huge and there's so much stuff out there that where do you even begin? Mm-hmm. And so as an architect type, like, a, a, like as a person who's like, okay, I like to design efficient systems. How do I make organization out of this kind of unbounded organic wildness of all of these resources? And I took it almost like a, a technical challenge. I didn't in the early days. I mean, Dan definitely led the way and taught me a lot about how to be a good programmer and a designer. Um, but what's critical about, I think, Miss Dream is that it's really about bridging the, tr- the, the, how do you call it, language barrier and cultural barriers globally. It started with this small intention to do a very specific subset of two language interpretations. Um, but now we have people who contribute um, translations from Cantonese into English or Italian into English. Um, we have a gentleman in Brazil who does Portuguese into English for us. We've had German into English. I mean, it's it's way beyond. Um, it, anyway, what I mean is it's what's so great about Midstream to me is that it really broke down a lot of those cultural and language barriers in the international community. It became this sort of international resource hub uh, without much of my interference or doing, frankly, it presented itself to me. Like, um, and because we were kind of willing to give it some time and energy and space, it became seen as like this home or this hub or this like source for the Sailor Moon fandom. But actually it's always been the Sailor Moon fandom building it the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just sort of helped curate it or maybe organize it a little bit better. Um, so these days, what I like about what I do professionally is that I, I still am bridging language barriers, technical language barriers. Um, I still work, um, I travel internationally and I still can work in Japanese and English and I can still engage that way. Um, But what I do, a lot of business intelligence work is about communicating, it's about storytelling, it's about, um, and one of the things that's great about Sailor Moon is its story, it's compelling. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've found new ways to engage in my own need to, break down those language barriers or um, collaborate more efficiently. Like a lot of the design work or programming work I do today is to become like single source of truth or a lot of design and automation and data um, or like statistical data analysis and data science and algorithm development and things like that. Um, So it's definitely diverged off from Miss Dream, but the same parts of it that were beautiful to me that were enticing about sharing these resources and sharing these different cultural interpretations of the same source material and seeing how different countries edited the source material over time to fit their culture. All of that's kind of out there. There's now a cohesive, I mean, the internet really revolutionized, of course, everyone's ability to connect. But I think for the Sailor Moon fandom, we've just been really blessed um, to come together.
together and not just my site right uh moon kitty and manga mm-hmm. style and then like many um very established websites so um i can be found mostly on my linkedin but it's um mostly to do with bi and programming not much to do with um I mean, I, I talk about translating, like technical translation for programming and BI, but uh, maybe mm-hmm. that would that would be a little like boring and dry for most Sailor Moon fans, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's of course Miss Dream subs on Twitter. Um, people can follow if they want to. Um, yeah, I think we can leave it at that. <laughs> I think who, who's running? Who's running the Miss Dream uh, subs Twitter account? Okay, Dan and Fred run it. Uh, see, I, I'll tell you yeah. truly, like yeah. I. I, I'm just like here to collect credit, even though I didn't really do much. Cause, like, I, mean, I really, I'm not really hands on in any of the day to day operations in Mystream anymore. Like, I would say, um, I want to be very fair about how I represent my own involvement these days mm-hmm. because um, I've definitely been a, controvers- a controversial figure in this community, to say the least. <laughs> but uh, it's. Yeah, I, I really can't take the credit. Like these days, I kind of like help coordinate our patrons getting in touch with all of our different um, specialists who are volunteers um, who staff the site. And I do a lot of procurement work because I can travel internationally or get things from um, friends and coworkers who live in Japan mm-hmm. and get those kind of rare source materials onto the site. Um, so I coordinate a lot of that, like sort of patronage program I guess you could call it and then also just doing the research like I do a lot of um, cross-language research to be able to catalog the materials that are coming in from all over the world Um, and so that's been really exciting so I get the opportunity to like we had a a gentleman um, this was many years ago but they sent us like all of the Animanga book and I think it was like in Russian or something right and I'm like shit what's the name of this publisher I can't read Cyrillic and they're like blah 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 and I'm like oh cool right like (laughs) right so like it's been really cool in that sense it's like I've been I get the opportunity to get exposed to all these different people from all over the world and kind of meet them halfway and like half of the time we're like definitely having conversations through Google Translate because we don't speak each other's native languages right Right. so that's been pretty cool Uh, but it's very limited like I would say maybe less than an hour a week I would spend on Mystream, if even that. Whereas, like, Dan uh, and Fred and Katie and the people who are, like, the core operation staff now, uh, for many people, it could be considered a full-time job or at least a non-profit gig. Like, it's ridiculous. But we can't be a 503C. Like, we're bootleggers, so... Uh, pitfalls of societies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like totally get that. Digital archivists. Yeah, I know. It's research. It's a research project. <laughs> a very, very large one. <laughs> yeah, I think that is totally fine. I completely get it. Um and yeah, I mean you're definitely a catalyst and you guys are doing amazing work as I've said before and I am so appreciative of both of you and the rest of the team um and yeah once again i'm victoria um a game is old school i'm the host of the sailor moon fan club podcast and you can find us at moonies club on twitter and moonies underscore club on instagram and that's it thank you guys for being on the show thank you